a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and once again, welcome to the show. This program is brought to you by Rio del Sion Home Lots, also Monticello College, and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Listen, I'm happy to have you aboard. Uh, it's it's great to make your acquaintance if you're joining us for the first time. If you are a longtime fellow wrong thinker and listener, welcome back. We have a lot to discuss today. So I'm going to cover a number of different topics today. We're going to talk a little bit about free speech and the danger to free speech. And by the way, it's it's not official censorship in the form of the government tamping us down, those, these voices of dissent. But uh, there are some pretty interesting developments. Do you realize that uh, Congress once again is summoning the leaders of big tech? And they want to know, how are you going to help prevent the spread of misinformation? Does that not sound like, does that not sound like uh, Congress is trying to get big tech to basically do its dirty work? We'll, we'll discuss that coming up here in a few minutes. We'll also talk about how it's time to get real about freedom of speech. Because you cannot have a flourishing human society without it. Also want to spend a little bit of time uh, just touching on a couple of uh, COVID things. We are so fast approaching the one-year anniversary of when everything shifted. And in the space of about a week, you know, we adopted things that to this day still linger. The masks, the distancing, the shutdowns, and so forth. And uh, if there's time in this hour, I'm going to spend a little bit of time, too, talking about another uh, pandemic of sorts. And that is actually... uh, uh, well, maybe it's more of an epidemic of loneliness that's spreading across America. By the way, it's very tied to the lockdowns. But first, let me uh, let me start with a little bit of a, a tribute. Just wanna, I want to give a little tribute to friendship. Uh, many years ago, and I mean many years ago, like forty four years ago, uh, my family moved from my birthplace in Salt Lake to a, a rural community in southern Idaho, Twin Falls, Idaho which uh, I think it was maybe about 20, 25,000 people at the time. It's, it's quite a bit bigger now. The word is out. But uh, I'll tell you, you know, as a kid, that was the first time I ever had to move. And it was pretty traumatic, as you might uh, imagine. You know, for an 11-year-old, it's like leaving your friends, leaving everything that's familiar. I was pretty sure I was going to die. But, uh, you know, we, we did the move, moved to a nicer home. You know, it was, it was kind of a crazy time. My mom and my sisters and I moved to our new house. My dad had to stay behind in Salt Lake because uh, right on the cusp of our move and him taking a new job there, he was diagnosed with cancer. So he had to stay and receive treatment in Salt Lake. And anyway, long story short, my second day of school in Twin Falls. And I think I was experiencing perhaps the loneliest moment of my life to that point. And this is, you know, this is not about poor me. I'm just stating an obvious fact. It was tough. Didn't know anybody, was, you know, anxious to make friends, but really, you know, how do you, how does that start? Hi, could I be your friend? <laughs> could it be that simple? Well, as it turns out, yes, it is. But it was my friend, Sean, who he wasn't there my first day of school. He came the next day. And as I'm sitting there in my sixth grade classroom and just, you know, again, trying to adapt, trying to acclimate, 
wondering, okay, how's this going to play out? Um, this guy comes and sits down at the desk across from me and says, hey, how you doing, man? I was like, oh, okay. He says, you got a friend? I said, I, I just moved here. And he says, you got a friend. And we get talking and find out, hey, we live less than a block from each other. In fact, just right through the block. Long story short, that was the beginning of a friendship that uh, endures to this day. And, I, and when I talk about a friendship, I don't just mean, yeah, yeah, I met him once and we talk, you know, in a blue moon. Uh, we, we don't talk as often, but I will tell you this. In 35 years, he has never missed calling me on my birthday. Never. That's pretty impressive. And his parents uh, were just like a, a second mom and dad to me. It's not that my own parents were deficient in any way, but I just always felt very welcome at their house. And, and this is one of the things I loved is uh, Sean and his family were not just carbon clones of my own family, and therefore that's why I felt comfortable. They, they had a different faith. Um, at their house, they drank coffee, and his dad smoked a pipe, which, by the way, I still to this day absolutely love the smell of coffee and the smell of pipe tobacco. Call me weird, but uh, that, uh, that smells like home, or at least it, it brings those feelings, oh, yeah, that was a, that was a more secure time. So... Sean's dad passed away here uh, within the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, that's, that's sad to bid farewell to someone who um, has led a good and long life. He was 86 years old. It wasn't COVID that took him. He had other health concerns, including being a cancer survivor. And um, long story short, my wife and I had the chance to travel up to uh, Boise, Idaho over the weekend to, uh, to pay our respects to this great man, Con O'Keefe, and uh, to, to connect up with my friend Sean and his family. And I just, I am so grateful for friendships like this. And if, if, if there's anything I could impress upon you, or I've tried to impress this on my kids. It's like, you know, you'll have a lot of people come and go in your life. And you'll have friends that will come and go. And it's not that, you know, well, I outgrew them or just, you know, we, we stopped getting along. Life takes you in different directions. I think most people understand that. But there are these rare gems of friends that just uh, remain a part of your life long-term, lifelong. And so I'm very grateful I had a chance to, to go and to, to, to support and to love Sean and his family and to, uh, to offer my respects for his dad. Um, it, it was interesting in that, uh, you know, the, the COVID restrictions uh, still very much in effect. They're in, in Boise, or as far as, you know, to, to go into the church, you got to be masked up. They strongly discourage any kind of uh, handshaking or anything like that. By the way, I don't mean to make it sound like, yeah, and we flouted all those laws, but uh, when you see somebody you haven't seen for the better part of, you know, 25 years, um, especially if they've just lost a loved one, I think you can be forgiven for giving them a hug instead of standing back at a safe six feet and, you know, click your heels and nod or whatever it is. So it was a really nice service. It was, it was beautiful, very meaningful, sad, you know, as, as uh, it is when any great life, you know, comes to an end. But uh, I, I just am, I'm so grateful to know that, uh, that there are people out there who, have have made their mark on the world in the right way, and I, I just I have to I have to give this this story. I have to share this story with you in honor of Sean's dad because to describe Con, he was uh, he was a big tall Irishman and uh, a very no nonsense kind of persona. Now that doesn't mean he was harsh or he was mean. As he just 
he just had a big, booming voice, and he was just this big, tall. His hair was white the whole time I knew him. So, you know, big old, tall, white-haired Irishman with a very commanding presence and voice. A can-do kind of guy could get stuff done. And uh, that, that was intimidating to some people. And Sean had older sisters, one of whom I guess had a date show up once when she was a teenager, you know, to take her out. This kid shows up at the door, and Dad meets him at the door and, you know, brings him in. And, you know, Con's a pretty tall guy. He was well over six feet tall and, and just, you know, he wasn't standing there flexing on the, the poor kid, but obviously this, this young man was pretty intimidated. So Con invites him in, and they're standing there in the living room, and Con, you know, pulls the pipe out of his mouth and says, well... Sit down. And this kid sat right there on the living room floor, right where he was standing. Yeah, he was he was a little intimidated. <laughs> but the family laughed about this, and, and rightly so, for years. And I just, uh, I, I'm grateful I had the chance to see Sean and his family. Um, I'm grateful we had a chance to kind of break some of the uh, protocols of uh, we must stay distanced and all things must be, you know, funerals, etc. should be done, you know, remotely and whatnot. If there was ever a time for people to come together, and I mean this is going to be according to, you know, how much risk are you willing to, to face, I think it's when, when they face a loss of a loved one. And, you know, I'm, I, I, I asked permission when I saw his dear mom. I, you know, asked her, may, may I give you a hug? And, uh, and thankfully she said yes. And it was, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the, the zero COVID movement and, and what it is becoming. Because I, I had another taste over the weekend and possibly this is just because I spent a little bit of time in rural Idaho, but I had a little taste of what, what used to pass for normal. And it was refreshing and it was encouraging. And it, it actually gave me hope that uh, we could once again have it if just enough people will exercise the initiative to to step up and say yeah i'm i'm going to go ahead and and having weighed the risks i'm still going to shake my friend's hand instead of treating everybody like i'm sorry but to, until you are proven to be you know healthy i don't want to be anywhere near you by the way pull your mask up there's some pretty strange behavior that we're expected to adopt as normal we're going to talk about how that's turning into Something that resembles a cult dressed as science. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I do want to mention that you can check out uh, the articles that I will share with you today. I always have links and a little bit of uh, commentary, some annotations to those links in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhideshow.com. And I hope you'll uh, bookmark it, subscribe to the podcast, become a patron if you would like. I'm not going to twist your arm, but I'm not going to stop you either. So as I share this next piece with you, this is from Jenin Yunus, published on the American Institute for Economic Research. The title, The Zero COVID Movement, Cult Dressed as Science. And I want to make this clear. I am not trying to thump my finger into your chest and tell you, you better think this or, you know, you're stupid. Because I don't think that's the case. And people are going to have different uh, 
degrees of tolerance in terms of how they would want to approach COVID. But there, there's one fact, and I, I, I believe that this is, I think this is true, not just because I say so or because one of my preferred experts say so. I think the evidence is bearing this out increasingly. And it's why you're starting to see some, in fact, a lot of public officials back down from their really hardline COVID stances. Cases are dropping quickly. People are, you know, not dying at the rate that they were. And, and none of this is to pretend, therefore, it's just a hoax. It's nothing but a, you know, an imaginary virus. No, I think it's quite real. And I think the risks are quite real, especially for certain segments of the population. But there is a, there's a school of thought out there, a movement known as Zero COVID. And it's had growing influence, and it's behind a lot of the lockdowns, a lot of the mask mandates. Here's my point. The lockdowns, whatever they may do, don't slow the spread of the virus. They haven't. They've done nothing. None of the political stuff done in response to COVID has slowed it down one bit. The proof in the pudding is when you look at places that have very strict lockdown protocols versus places that have fewer or no lockdown, you know, mandates like this, the curve looks very much the same in terms of the number of infections, number of deaths, hospitalizations, and so forth. They follow and track almost identically. There's not enough of a difference to say, ah, but look here, you know, these these policies slowed it. They don't. What they do, however, is they destroy people's livelihoods, people's sanity, people's sense of their their, their sense of community. We become these little heel-clicking enforcers, you know, pull your mask up, put a mask on. Seen some very interesting and disturbing videos over the weekend about this. So here's what, uh, here's what Jenin Yunus has to say. She says, this past year's given rise to some strange and novel methods of disease containment, including lockdowns and mask mandates. It's unsurprising that the natural next step in this progression has been the development of a movement known as Zero COVID. And its growing influence is perhaps predictable, given that for nearly a year we've been inundated by the views of so-called experts seeking to legitimize their myopic worldview that public health is determined solely by the prevention of COVID-19. Rather than acknowledge to a weary public that their approach has been a failure, they're doubling down and attempting to save their reputations by claiming the problem is not that lockdowns don't work, but that they haven't gone far enough. Now, there's apparently some diversity of opinion among the zero-COVID crowd as to whether the term is to be interpreted literally, as some of its most impassioned and vocal proponents argue, or whether it simply means a more extreme version of the ideology that's dominated societies around the globe for the past year. The belief that suppressing the coronavirus is a singularly important goal to replace all others and to be pursued with no or only minimal consideration of the effects of doing so. Jen and Eunice says... Zero COVID promoters appear to agree that much stricter border controls, lockdowns, and mask mandates are needed than exist in most nations today. Sam Bowman, one of the most prominent zero COVIDers, claims, for instance, that the only way to address the coronavirus problem is with lockdowns, school closures, travel bans, mass testing, contact tracing, and masks. Likewise, former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair's think tank has stated that the only way to avoid another lockdown is to bring coronavirus cases to zero. China, Australia, and New Zealand are portrayed as successes by zero-COVID proponents and prove that suffering now brings with it the promise of eventual freedom. Now, while marketing themselves as theoretically opposed to lockdowns, zero-COVID adherents actually aspire to implement a totalitarian-style state, 
which we're supposed to believe will exist only temporarily. For example, Devi Sridhar, one of the movement's most public faces in the United Kingdom, has claimed that the only way out of endless lockdown is a crude, harsh, catastrophic lockdown. Now, the first phase. Given that the third phase of Sidar's plan entails an East Asian and Pacific model of elimination that prohibits travel abroad, she says, I can only imagine precisely what sort of totalitarian nightmare Sidar envisions during phase one. Now, those who follow this philosophy fail to recognize the glaringly obvious truth that suppression tactics have not succeeded because they run contrary to human nature as well as basic cell biology and entail severe deprivations of human rights and liberties. They also don't acknowledge the fact that if the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, managed to eliminate the coronavirus, a questionable assumption, given the CCP's tenuous relationship with the truth, it did so using tactics that prima facie can, can constitute human rights violations. She says even Australia and New Zealand, which before 2020 were considered beacons of liberal democracy, have recently been the subject of investigations or inquiries by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. The zeroed COVID proponents don't address the reality that China, Australia, and New Zealand have continually had to implement lockdown policies in response to new cases arising, even after declaring victory over the virus, and the latter two are island nations, able to effectuate border control in a way that cannot possibly be applied to nations that are geographically proximate to others and in which the virus has already become endemic. The COVID Community Action Summit, a conference held at the end of January, led and attended by many of Zero COVID's main players, needless to say, over Zoom, offers a glimpse into the warped worldview that pervades the ideology. The architect of Zero COVID and the first speaker at the summit was Yanir Baryam, an American scientist who specializes in complex systems and quantitative analysis of pandemics, and founded the New England Complex Systems Institute, NESCI. The participants came from a variety of backgrounds in addition to doctors and scientists, political consultants, and communications specialists were also in, te- in attendance. Many presenters had business interests in pharmaceuticals and diagnostics, and those from the United States tended to be affiliated with Democratic Party politics and campaigns. Now, one of the most disturbing presentations was delivered by Blake Elias, a researcher at NESCI who works directly under Baryam. Given Elias's position, it's fair to assume that his views, as articulated at the summit, reflect those held by its organizer. Elias, like n- numerous other zero-COVID advocates, believes that lives versus economy framing of the problem is incorrect. Notably, many lockdown opponents also consider this the wrong lens through which to view the issue, but for different reasons. Namely, that the economy and people's lives are inextricably intertwined, and lockdown policies don't take into account crucial considerations such as mental health and civil liberties. Valuing each life somewhat arbitrarily and without regards to life expectancy at $10 million, Elias plugged a bunch of numbers into a machine and voila, came up with irrefutable proof that locking down hard and fast is less costly than failing to do so. Now, Elias earnestly stated that his airtight equation demonstrates that if you are against elimination, meaning zero COVID, the only conceivable reason could be that you dispute one of his premises, so therefore you believe one of the following. The cost of infections is lower than it is. The cost of lockdowns is more. Hospital capacity is greater. The importation rate is higher. Or complete vaccination is achievable in a shorter time frame. 
At no time did he mention psychology, human rights, or civil liberties. If Elias had the slightest understanding of these concepts, he did an exceptional job of hiding it. We'll come back to this article from Jen and Eunice here in just a few moments, but I will have a link to this in the show notes and strongly encourage you to take a look at it yourself and decide if it's something worth uh, subscribing to or possibly sharing with your friends. We'll be back in just a moment right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. If you have commercial insurance, I don't have to tell you, it gets complicated, and I mean complicated quickly. So if you need a team of honest-to-goodness insurance experts, commercial insurance experts, these are the guys you want to contact. Best way to reach them is go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are show notes for February 22nd. Right down at the bottom, you'll find sponsor links, and you can click on that and get right in touch with them. It's really that simple. So I'm sharing with you an article here by Jenin Yunus. This is published on the American Institute for Economic Research, talking about the zero-COVID movement. I didn't realize there was an actual movement by that name, but I've definitely seen, you know, the fruits of their labors in terms of we got to lock it down harder. We got to do it, uh, you know, more. We got to do more of what we were doing before and, and harder, and that's what's going to make the difference. I don't agree with it. And clearly, uh, neither does uh, Jen and Yunus. It's funny, too, when, when they talk about, uh, uh, you know, slowing the spread or stopping, eliminating the spread of the disease. She points out that nowhere did one of the uh, founders of this recent conference by the uh, zero COVID movement talk about human rights, civil liberties, or even psychology. She says, Michelle Lukasik. And, and Eric Nixon, like Elias, gave a presentation akin to what I imagine it would be like to watch aliens discuss human psychology and behavior. Presumably a couple, Lukasik and Nixon founded a company called Make Good Together. And they believe that the coronavirus problem boils down to a lack of individual discipline and accountability. They acknowledge that the extreme social distancing they touted as the answer to the world's woes is contrary to our nature but insisted we simply must try harder. We, mu- we could eradicate coronavirus, they solemnly instructed us, if only we would insist upon declining social invitations and suggested that people post pledges on social media to that effect. They apparently spent little time considering the plight of essential workers whose employment does not allow them the luxury of distancing, apart from a comedic de- description of the psychic discomfort they experienced when the mask of a workman in their home slipped down his face. Lukasik was very proud of Nixon for refusing to shake the man's hand upon his departure. She says, I had to double-check the link a couple of times to make sure I hadn't stumbled across a Saturday Night Live episode inadvertently. Another noteworthy contributor to the Zero COVID Summit was Michael Baker, architect of New Zealand's coronavirus strategy. 
Baker insisted that following the science indisputably leads to the zero-COVID strategy, as though science alone informs policy. He made several stunning admissions, among which are that containment should be the strategy for influenza, and the coronavirus pandemic has given us the opportunity to reset in order to address inequities in society and threats posed by climate change. In other words, Baker doesn't see or foresee a return to normal life. As presented by, as demonstrated rather, by its presenters at the uh, summit, zero COVID is the unfortunate end result of the inexplicable belief held by too many people that it makes sense to fixate upon one problem to the exclusion of all others. No one at the summit, or in any other context for that matter, has ever made a convincing case for elevating the coronavirus pandemic above all other considerations. And there's a reason for this. And that's that the logic and the facts all point in the opposite direction. Now, an argument could certainly be made that a virus or other threat calculated to wipe out humanity or a significant portion of it across age ranges warrants exclusive focus on that threat for its duration. But Jen and Yunus says, as she and others have written before, the coronavirus simply does not constitute such a danger. We now have a year of data from which to conclude beyond all doubt that exposure to the virus only poses significant risk beyond those we're accustomed to taking in everyday life to the very old. The overwhelming majority of those infected with the virus suffer not at all or minimally and recover within days or weeks. Now, that doesn't mean the problem should be ignored, but rather it should be addressed utilizing the same methodology with which we approach all public health matters, taking into account the effects of the policies enacted in response to them. Zero COVID adherents are not qualitatively different from the epidemiologists and politicians who've advocated for and imposed lockdowns and mask mandates across the globe. They all believe that they can force billions of people to behave for an indefinite time period in ways that are contrary to our nature and deleterious to our well-being. They see nothing wrong with assuming control over every facet of our lives. She says they're maniacally focused upon theories and models and uninterested in what works in practice. They have no conception of human liberty or dignity. Rather than recognize that lockdowns, forced human separation, and masks are ineffective at quelling the spread of the coronavirus while carrying enormous costs, not the least of them the erasure of liberal democracy, the most fervent adherents to this ideology believe that the answer is more and harder. And that means deprivation of our rights and liberties and denial of our basic human needs until the coronavirus is eradicated from the globe. And if they get their way, that may well be until the end of time. By the way, she gives thanks to her colleagues and friends, Phil Magnus and Kylie Holiday, who assisted her in researching and writing the article. I don't know, maybe it strikes you as harsh. Maybe it's something, you know, well, now that seems a little bit uh, too, too strident, but I think she's calling it straight. I think this is this is right on the money. There are those who believe, you know, the only way to do this is to lock it down even harder. <clears throat> it's interesting they use the term reset. Those who are part of that zero code, this is going to be part of a greater reset to address societal inequities and also climate change. Almost sounds like, well, this is the perfect excuse for us to flex power we've never been able to use before and to bend people to our will in another in a number of other areas that we've long been lusting for control over the populace. Now, maybe that's just my interpretation, and it's as always, it's possible I could be wrong. But from what I understand of human nature, I don't think, I don't think that's so far off. 
fact, I think it's probably closer to the truth. All right, shifting gears. We're going to talk about free speech for a moment. I've got two articles that uh, I want to strongly recommend you check out. I'm not going to give them to you in, in their entirety, but you can check them out at the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. First one here is uh, published on, on uh, zerohedge.com. This is actually, uh, they're, they're republishing an article from Glenn Greenwald. And Greenwald is warning, Congress escalates pressure on tech giants to censor more. Now, I don't know if you've been following this or not, but do you realize for the third time in less than five months, Congress has summoned the CEOs of social media companies to appear before them with the explicit intent to pressure and coerce them to censor more content from their platforms. On March 25th, the House Energy and Commerce Committees will interrogate Twitter's Jack Dorsey, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, and Google's Sundar Pichai at a hearing which, in which uh, the committee announced will focus on misinformation and disinformation plaguing online platforms. Now, the committee's chair, Representative Frank Pallone of New Jersey, and two chairs of the subcommittees holding the hearings, uh, Mike Doyle and Jan Schakowsky, said in a joint statement that the impetus was the falsehoods about COVID-19 vaccine and debunked claims of election fraud. They argued that these online platforms have allowed misinformation to spread, intensifying national crises with grim, real-life consequences for public health and safety. And this hearing will continue the committee's work of holding online platforms accountable for the growing rise of misinformation and disinformation. Does it not sound like Congress is trying to get these tech companies, hey, toe the line, you do the censoring for us, and since it's being done by the private sector, you know, our hands are clean. Look, oh, we're not censoring anybody. We're just trying to get the people whose uh, who's platforms have so deeply impacted so many people's online lives, which is pretty much all of us, we're just trying to get them to rein in the people who say things that we don't like. I mean, this this shouldn't take you by surprise. Big companies don't become big, and I mean incredibly huge companies and successful to the extent that these tech giants have without climbing into bed with government at some level. So it's benefited them. It's made them wealthy beyond uh, their imaginations. And in return, you know, the godfather of government just needs you to do a little favor here. You know, just I uh, need you to squeeze some of these people who are talking out of turn and saying things they shouldn't. By the way, Glenn Greenwald says House Democrats have made no secret of their ultimate goal with this hearing, which is to exert control over the content on these online platforms. They say industry self-regulation has failed, therefore we must begin the work of changing incentives, driving social media companies to allow and even promote misinformation and disinformation. In other words, Glenn Greenwald says they intend to use state power to influence and coerce these companies to change content which they do and to change which content they do and do not allow to be published. That sounds a lot like an attack on free speech. I don't know. Maybe one of my more learned libertarian colleagues could explain to me how it's not. But at first blush, that's sure what it feels like. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Glenn Greenwald. This was republished on ZeroHedge.com, but uh, Congress is escalating its pressure on tech giants to censor more, which threatens the First Amendment. And again, I, I know there are some people who, who possess a sufficient degree of sophistry that they can make this make sense. Well, of course, Brian, you know, these private actors, the, they're doing it. Why, it's totally okay. You know, as long as it's not government, you can't really say that this is, you know, coercing uh, uh, people to clamp down on free speech. But uh, Glenn Greenwald reports, Ben Weisner, director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, told him that while a constitutional analysis depends on a variety of factors, including the types of threats issued and how much coercion is amassed, it's well established that the First Amendment governs attempts by Congress to pressure private companies to censor. This is what Ben Weisner said. For the same reasons that the Constitution prohibits the government from dictating what information we can see and read outside narrow limits, it also prohibits the government from using its immense authority to coerce private actors into censoring on its behalf. It's a pretty lengthy article. Glenn Greenwald is nothing if not thorough. But this is something that uh, that really deserves to be on your radar screen. He says, when it comes to censorship of politically averse con- adverse content, sometimes explicit censorship demands are unnecessary. When a climate of censorship prevails, companies anticipate what those in power want them to do by anticipatorily self-censoring to avoid official retaliation. Speech is chilled without direct censorship orders being required. Now, he reminds us, this is clearly what happened after the Democrats spent four years petulantly insisting that they lost the 2016 election, not because they chose a deeply disliked nominee or because their neoliberal ideology wrought so much misery and destruction, but instead, they said, because Facebook and Twitter allowed the unfettered circulation of incriminating documents hacked by Russia. Anticipating the Democrats were highly likely to win in 2020, the two tech companies decided in the weeks before the election, in what Glenn Greenwald says he resolves, regards rather, as the single most menacing act of censorship of the last decade, they chose to suppress or outright ban reporting by the New York Post on documents from Hunter Biden's laptop that raised serious questions about the ethics of the Democratic frontrunner for president. That's a classic case of self-censorship to please state officials who wield power over you. Great article here. I strongly recommend you take a look at it. The First Amendment, he says, is implicated by these coercive actions as much as if Congress enacted laws explicitly mandating censorship of their political opponents. This may not be the time to roll over and just pretend, oh, well, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Why does free speech matter? Well, Brendan O'Neill, who's the editor of Spiked Online, says it's time to get real about freedom of speech. And he's talking not just in America, he's talking around the globe. His point here is that neither side in the culture war seems to understand how crucial this liberty, freedom of speech, is to human flourishing. He says, I'm glad sections of the left find this free speech crisis so funny, or free speech crisis in parentheses, as they always put it, uh, or quotation marks, as they always put it, those sarky quote marks signaling their skepticism toward the idea that there's a censorship problem on campus and elsewhere in society. Free speech! 
They cry at anyone who thinks it's a bad thing that people can be no-platformed, threatened with death, or sacked from their jobs for expressing the wrong opinion. Hilarious, isn't it? He says it's hilarious when activists piss on the door of a feminist academic's office because they don't like her criticisms of gender self-ID. It's hilarious when a disabled working-class grandfather is sacked from his job because he posted a Billy Connolly spit on social, skit rather on social media that made fun of Islam. It's hilarious when a labor shadow minister loses her job because she dared raise concerns about the grooming and raping of working-class girls in various parts of England. Free speech, LOL. He says, make no mistake, when the cultural and media elites mock the idea of a free speech crisis, when they insist cancel culture doesn't exist, this is the reality they're denying. This is the actual abuse, demonization, uh, and the censorship that they claim is not real. But he says, actually, it's worse than that. These censorship deniers don't merely question the reality of these grim assaults on people's free expression. We can see the foul tweets calling J.K. Rowling horrible words. We all know what urine splashed on somebody's door looks and smells like. So we know this stuff is real. No, they implicitly justify these chilling crusades against open discussion. By refusing to describe these attacks as as attacks on freedom of speech, they normalize them. They green light them. And then they ridicule the idea that people's freedom of speech is under attack because they don't care about the people whose freedom of speech is under attack. They support this censorship of bad feminists, of old blokes who mock Islam, people who are too right-wing. That's why they refuse to condemn it as censorship. It's an excellent article. I hope you'll check it out for yourself. I'm going to warn you right now, there's, there's some strong adult language in there. Not a gratuitous amount, but but definitely enough that uh, don't be reading this one aloud to your kids without, you know, a warning. Brendan O'Neill says, censorship serves one purpose only, to protect, protect orthodoxies, to safeguard the status quo, to preserve power. And he says, anyone who's interested in challenging these things should stand up for freedom of speech on campus, in the workplace, in society, in art, in culture, all censorships exist to prevent anyone from challenging current conceptions, conceptions rather, and existing institutions. All progress is initiated by challenging current conceptions and executed by supplanting existing institutions. Consequently, the first condition of progress is the removal of censorship. Pretty powerful stuff. Who thought that we'd be seeing this uh, play out, you know, ac- across our lives? One final article here and this is uh this is one that brings me concern if for no other reason that uh i got the chance to hug my mom again this past weekend and uh you know this is like this is like the third or fourth time in about a month's time that i've had the chance to travel and and visit with her and 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 give her a hug and i just the the article here is by carrie mcdonald from the Foundation for Economic Education, Harvard study, an epidemic of loneliness is spreading across America. I just want to verify from my very limited sample size here, there is, there is a very real epidemic of loneliness. And the lockdowns haven't helped. And now there is a new report by Harvard University researchers that finds 36% of Americans are experiencing serious loneliness. And by the way, it's not just the elderly. Some groups, like young adults or mothers with small children, are especially isolated. 
And Kerry says loneliness among Americans has been growing in recent years, but the policy response to the COVID-19 pandemic has drastically exacerbated the problem. Researchers at the Harvard Graduate School of Education's Making Caring Common project analyzed data from an October 2020 online survey of 950 Americans. They concluded that alarming numbers of Americans are lonely and reported substantial increases in loneliness since the outbreak of the pandemic. By the way, young adults are the loneliest group. According to the research findings, 61% of young people ages 18 to 25 reported feeling lonely frequently or almost all of the time or all the time during the four weeks preceding that fall survey. 43% of young adults indicated their loneliness had increased since the pandemic and related lockdowns began, and those results echo similar findings of other Harvard researchers who found nearly half of young adults were showing signs of depression amid the pandemic response. And in August, the CDC reported one in four young adults in this age range had contemplated suicide during the month of June. Now, there's a lot more to this, and she she really covers it well. Here's how she concludes it. She says, The loneliness that many Americans currently feel is heartbreaking. Big government's assent prior to the pandemic and the role of government in responding to the pandemic with coercive measures have contributed to and exacerbated the loneliness epidemic. Relying less on government and more on the voluntary fabric of civil society can make us all happier, healthier, and more connected to each other and to our communities. This is the reason why I'm sharing this particular article in that there's a lot of ways that you and I cannot affect public policy. Sorry, but uh, we just don't have the lobbying clout to get uh, lawmakers to take us seriously or policymakers to take us seriously. But something that is very much within our grasp is to be kind to one another, to be aware of one another, and most importantly, to reach out when we recognize that someone is struggling. If you want to try something sobering, if you can find a newspaper, take a look at the obituaries. And I know, you know, people, oh, I don't want to look at the obituaries. I might find myself in there. <clears throat> what I'm thinking you're going to find, though, is there's, there's a strange amount of young people who died unexpectedly that seemed to show up in the obituaries. Yeah, I don't think it's too big of a stretch to suggest that suicide is becoming a much, much bigger problem. Let's do what we can to help the people around us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.